Hey guys, today's topic is deeply personal to me, and it is workaholism, specifically how to self-diagnose workaholism and what to do about it. But let me first declare that I am a workaholic, and this is the first addiction that I've ever admitted to in my life, and I'm admitting to it publicly for a reason. For those of you who are familiar with AA or have heard about it, one of the first steps of actually dealing with an addiction is acknowledging that you are addicted. And that is, I have to be honest, that is deeply shameful to me because there is a, there's an element of addiction implying that I am out of control. That does not feel too comfortable for somebody who's prided herself in always figuring things out and always finding a way, always solving any problem that may come up. But looking at it on the other hand, what if that's another problem I get to solve? So that's how I'm approaching it. And I would invite you guys, if you're struggling with the same thing, to approach it the same way. Maybe that's just another problem that we get to solve. Okay, so the first question you get to ask yourself is... Is working hard and accomplishing a lot something that I am proud of? Something that I consider to be a strength of mine? And really pause before you answer this question. For me, as I'm sure for countless others in the world of corporate America or the world of tech and startups, it has been a characteristic that has been not just encouraged, but actively rewarded. I'll say that again. Workaholism has been a characteristic that's been actively encouraged and rewarded monetarily, reputationally, socially. In a startup environment, you as an employee are a resource. That's why in business school and management schools, they call the workforce labor force or labor. It is a vestige of the Industrial Revolution where the system, the apparatus was the industry and the ingredients were cogs in the wheel, supplies, ingredients, raw materials, and one of the other ingredients was labor. So labor has been seen as this amorphous resource that is used, is consumed by the machinery of the industry, of the company, of whatever's being produced. And if you look at our educational system, it really mirrors that. In school in general, we don't learn how to think and how to make decisions. In school, we are encouraged to memorize and spit back out information. And in this day and age, that is not a life skill that is useful anymore. One could argue that even good spelling is useless because of autocorrect and all kinds of spell checks that happen automatically. And what about Google? You can pretty much Google anything that you want to know. Now, of course, you may want to discriminate the answers that you get, but even if you just look at Wikipedia and some of the other reputable information sources out there, there's no reason to memorize things that have to do with different elements 
of the periodic table or what have you. Unless, of course, you're using that knowledge daily and you need to access it very quickly to make decisions and go about your work as a scientist or as a lab specialist, etc. So even looking at the way the educational system is set up, we are getting a clue that that's part of society's conditioning. I recently realized that my business school that I went to, Harvard Business School, was essentially in its roots a production system for managers, for people who would manage labor. We weren't, until recently, I think the school has made huge strides, of course, in introducing a lot more courses and a lot more teaching on entrepreneurship and decision-making. But the decision-making that has been taught historically in business schools has been around decision-making within the structure and framework of a company, of an organization, how to move resources around, how to make trade-offs, how to plan how to fix mistakes, how to prevent mistakes from happening. Very few things have been, at least when I was going through, like relatively fewer of the classes, and I really enjoyed them a lot, were about looking at the blue sky or blue ocean and saying, okay, what can I do? What can I create here from scratch? And that distinction really needs to sink in for you guys if you have being a product of the school system, if you've been a product of corporate America and the companies and how incentives are laid out for corporate employees and management. So with that in mind, let's just have a moment of compassion for ourselves. The eight-hour workday is again a product of the Industrial Revolution. It was actually introduced first by Ford, I believe, when he made the first mass production of Model T, the car. And I'm really reading up on it right now. I'm really curious to see how that's evolved because people's assumptions and perceptions of what working hours or what the optimal number of hours to work has been very much fixed in society due to these evolutions of the industrial age. And so we just have to have a bit of compassion for ourselves and understand like this is how we were raised. This is how we were conditioned. This is how we were taught. So it's not surprising that when something's been working for you as it has been for me for many, many years, and you've been rewarded for it, both reputationally as well as financially, that you kind of keep doing what you think is working. And what's working is especially in the later years in my career when people had cell phones and you didn't have to stay in the office to do the work, but you could, you know, log in from anywhere and a lot of work happened on cell phones and laptops. I would say that the expectation was that as long as you are an employee of a company, you're always on. And that created a lot of burnout and unsustainable work rhythms. I would say that this was highly stimulating in my 20s and 30s, especially because it came with a lot of learning, a steep learning curve, a lot of rewards in terms of accomplishments and experience and the gratification of having done something, accomplished something in a short period of time, something that was big, meaningful. And of course, the financial rewards of being financially well-off and independent. 
that was the way that we lived and we survived and we thrived in that environment. And as a person acquires a family and starts having a more fuller, richer life than, you know, just being a young person out of school with no family and practically living in the office, there's this tension that develops between what's worked for a person before and the new realities or new demands on his or her time. Family, maybe starting a family, maybe taking care and spending quality time with existing family. And that is important because at the end of the day, I think what we've lost in the United States and is still the case in countries like New Zealand and other European, well, other countries, but also European countries, is the notion that you work to live, you work to sustain a rich and rewarding life, and you don't live to work, which is something that I've noticed very much of the kind of identity in the U.S., especially among successful people in tech or in corporate America or even among entrepreneurs. So now that we understand this, we understand that if you are part of American culture and the American society, you probably have been impacted by this. And I did not realize how much I was impacted by it until a couple of things happened. And the big aha moment for me came when I was day a few weeks ago. I was part of this mastermind. I am part of a mastermind. That's fantastic. It has a bunch of people who've accomplished a lot of things like uh, build multiple companies, sold multiple companies, built funnels and companies to a million dollars or more annually annual revenue. So these are serious people. These are not aspirational entrepreneurs. And our mastermind organizer was walking us through blocky time in the calendar, how he does planning for himself and his team and how he chunks out time for various types of activities. So just a quick overview. If you think of four types of activities that you want to have on your calendar as an entrepreneur running their own business, it breaks down into kind of time off or recovery, recreation time. Then there is a strategy time or learning time or planning. And then the third one is admin time, which also includes any fulfillment that you may be doing in terms of your courses or your services to your clients, as well as calendaring, emailing, scheduling, etc. And finally, green time, which is a revenue producing activities like creating content for funnels, writing emails that will actually present offers, making offers, getting on enrollment calls with potential clients, prospecting, getting people into your funnel to move them through the client journey, etc. So the way that he showed us how he does it is he first goes through a time period, whether it's a quarter or a year or a month. The first thing he does is he blocks out the yellow time, which is the time off, recreational time, etc. And he does that deliberately and he takes a lot of time off. A lot meaning in my mind here, I caught myself as I was watching him taking the yellow blocks on his calendar and seeing him block entire weeks and in one case an entire month. I realized that I was having a lot of judgment well up inside of me. That judgment was like, wow, this is too much. 
And then I had to go back in my head and ask myself the question, well, compared to what? What am I comparing this too much to? And then I realized I was comparing it to, <laughs> I was comparing it to what we had in tech. Even though a lot of companies in tech instituted unlimited time off, it was rarely used. In practice, people probably took at most two weeks off in a given year. And rarely would anybody want to take or kind of feel comfortable or be allowed to take more than two weeks in a row continuous. In fact, one of the biggest departure points for me out of the corporate world into my own business was when I committed to climb Denali, I knew that that was going to take me off the grid for three weeks. And I just knew that, you know, talking to any tech company about coming on board as a product manager, as somebody in a position of influence and driving lots of important projects, that it would be a very difficult conversation to have that, you know, a few months down the line, I'm just going to be <laughs> less than a year from now, I'm going to be disappearing for a full month. I knew that that wouldn't be acceptable. So I knew that that was something that was a no-go. But back to the mastermind session when he was walking us through calendaring and I caught myself having these judgments and these moments of kind of indignation of how dare he, you know, this is this is unacceptable. And then the second layer of thought and emotion behind that was, what am I going to do with that time? Because I love my work. I constantly think about projects at work. I think about my clients, their customer avatars. I mean, seriously, guys, I consider myself very, very lucky because the clients that I work with are personally very important to me. I care so much about them, their businesses, who their avatars are, that I think about it all the time. I think about new ideas for them and new concepts, about new ideas for Facebook ads, new ideas for, you know, the build out of mine and Joe's business. So it doesn't feel like work. And that's the tricky part. It doesn't feel like work, but it is. And so the second thought was like, what am I going to do with that time? And then I had another realization, which led me to the second question you can ask yourself when you're diagnosing workaholism. And that is, so the first question was, is working hard something you're proud of and part of your identity as an achiever? And the second question is, when you have quote unquote time off, do you also engage in activities that are challenging you and that have you full on engaged in another aspect, perhaps physically? Or do you take the time to quote unquote do nothing and let creativity kind of marinate and maybe you get inspired to pick up a book and read something? Maybe you contemplate nature, maybe you go for a walk or do you always have things scheduled and booked? And I realized that in the past, when I was working in corporate America, of course, the few weeks that I would get off, every single hour of those free days would be planned because there were so few of them. And so if we were taking a trip to go to Scotland, for example, we would want to maximize our time there and we would end up, this actually happened, we went to Scotland a few years ago and I think we drove around half of the country 
stayed in a castle, went to a few remote islands, went to distilleries. I mean, it was such a sprint just to make sure to cover every single piece of the place. And then we were tired and exhausted when we came back from vacation. Here, a lot of people say, well, we, you know, I need a vacation after vacation. And that's a symptom of like you not allowing for downtime, proper downtime of recovery and rest and doing nothing. And I realized that because I caught myself as I saw in the mastermind, those yellow blocks of time being blocked off. I'm like, well, hold on a second. I can't, you know, I only block off that much time if I'm going to climb a big mountain like Denali, you know, I'll block off this time. And then I'll need a whole six months ahead of time to actually train daily for a number of hours a day to actually allow me to go scale that mountain. And then once I'm in that expedition, it's full on. I mean, I cannot tell you guys how exhausted and absolutely wrecked I was after the Denali expedition. My body did not know what hit it. I had lost a ton of weight because, you know, it's a, it's a very strenuous expedition and you are high up and you don't I mean you eat as much as you can, but it's high altitude. And so you end up losing weight, losing muscle, end up losing a lot of weight. And my body flipped into some sort of like, I think my body thought it was starving. So when I came back from the mountain, I had an unbridled appetite. Like my body wanted to eat anything that was in sight. I think it had gone into shock thinking I was going to kill it. But anyway, (laughs) this was my only idea of what to do with three weeks uninterrupted or hike, you know, go to New Zealand and do some strenuous hike where you're literally pounding like 10 to 20 miles a day on mountains and carrying packs. And I'm like, yes, that is important to me. That is a very important part of how I get to enjoy my life and to enjoy the world. But seriously, I struggled to find a time where I took time off and I didn't do something full on physically. So that realization was huge for me. That was the second question. I never took time off just to recover, regenerate, renew without anything planned like the whole beach, lying on the beach and in nature. I go to nature often, but always I combine it with some training or some hike where I'm monitoring my heart rate and I'm monitoring, you know, how much I'm doing. You know, I have my meditation practice in the morning and it's 22 minutes exactly. I found that I'm uncomfortable with a unstructured time off with just nothing. I honestly am still afraid of that, afraid of being bored, afraid of not moving and not seeing enough or not doing enough. So that's the second question that led me on to the realization that I'm a workaholic. And this was uh, this is the one that I struggle with, to be honest, because You know, I love to read books. I love to listen to interesting trainings and videos and podcasts. But, you know, just um, I find that it's hard for me to go for more than an hour without like feeling the urge to change tracks, to do something, to, okay, now flip to something else. And the final question to self-diagnose workaholism has to do with the concept of recovery. And it is 
Can you go slow? Can you go slow? Can you slow down? Can you do nothing? Or can you kind of, I don't know if it's doing nothing, but it's like somebody who's being interested in spiritual disciplines and physical disciplines like yoga and qigong and a lot of kind of energy disciplines. One of the core concepts of all of these disciplines is the yin-yang balance. It's the balance of the elements, the balance of the forces. You have the active and the passive, the fire and the water, the yin, the yang, the action-oriented and the receptive. And, you know, I was recently watching a training by this amazing master, and I'm dedicating time now to actually do these practices daily, uh, Qigong practices. Qigong is an ancient Chinese energy art related to Tai Chi. It's a physical integration of physical, spiritual, and mental. It's moving of energy so that your body is fully integrated into all of your systems. And there's a concept there about this kind of balance between the water and the fire. The fire, you know, they have this concept kind of like it's known as the microcosmic orbit or the small universe, which is a circle of energy that goes through your torso. It kind of starts, well, starts at any of the gateways. Let's say it starts at the bottom of your torso, the perineum. Then it goes up up towards your spine, up on your, towards your back, and then over your head, descending down through the front of your body. And the back part that rises is known as the fire dragon. It's a fiery, it's the fire energy. And the part that descends from the front is the water. It's the lunar, it's the receptive energy. And something that they teach just really struck a bell with me that a lot of the water elements that we have that are concentrated in our saliva, in our reproductive organs, um, in kind of that like in our kidneys, in those parts of us that are, you know, have water to function, that essence, that water needs to be cultivated. It cannot be burnt out or spent. It's actually something that needs to accumulate. We need to let it accumulate and let it drip and let it kind of fill up. We need to fill our cup with that essence. And that essence is really easily burnt out by fire, by spending it out on incessant activity, mental activity, physical activity, but constantly being in the go, 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 go. And the concept of not recovering is highly detrimental according to those philosophies because you burn out your life essence. Your jing is called in Chinese or the life essence energy. In yoga, it's called the ojas. So burning the ojas, the juicy, the elixir, the, the moisture in your life, burning it out. And, you know, that's that's a concept that's hard for us to understand. And I witnessed that firsthand when I trained with Uphill Athlete, who is an incredible company. I have so much love and respect, you know, Steve House and Scott Johnson. They teach a very radically different type of training and preparation, which is very recovery centric and recovery based to where when you train, you don't train to your fullest potential. Like on a scale of one to 10, if you were to go for a run, you wouldn't go like a nine or 10 all the time, huffing and puffing and sweating. 
If you go for, you know, a hike or any other physical practice like yoga. Same thing in yoga, actually. A lot of people go to yoga classes to quote-unquote burn, feel the burn and feel that they've worked out because they have so much activity stuffed in their calendar that they have half an hour to work out and so they want to quote-unquote maximize it. But the type of training that I did with a athlete was slower, was more intentional, deliberate, and it was in a much slower heart rate. And universally, and I've spoken to a lot of athletes who train with them. By the way, this type of training, even though you don't feel the burn, you're spending a lot of hours doing less intense training and preparation. And the athletes that go through that training universally are way more successful at climbing the mountains and achieving their race objectives than other people who really burn through, expend their energy all the time and are just burnt out by the time they get to the mountain. But the reason I mentioned it is because I realized a lot of people are struggling with the same thing. Some of the athletes I spoke to, like there was one guy who was a big runner in his community. He said, well, you know, when I go and do this training, I want to put a paper bag over my head because I'm embarrassed. People are universally embarrassed by seeing, you know, pregnant women pass them or older people pass them. There was this kid in the army that was training with this method. I talked to him and he said, well, you know, it's really hard if I go running with some of my buddies in the army. They really make fun of me for being slow because the army really drives towards that like kind of maximum exertion. And I have a funny story about that. You know, at Denali, there were two military teams that were with us on the mountain that were also climbing Denali at the same time as us. Different rope teams, different guides. But there was a Navy SEAL team that did really, really well. And just for the record, my climbing team matched the time it took the Navy SEAL team to summon and go back the same day. Just for the record, I'd like to point that out. But the other team was an Army team. And that Army team just displayed absolutely everything that was wrong with pushing into the limit in this kind of bravado or false sense of like macho way. And yeah, their commander ordered them to do one step carry. One step carry means that you don't cash, you don't take half of your gear and cash it and then go back and then move over the rest. They wanted them to carry absolutely everything in between camps. So these guys were so miserable with under the weight and they I think they kind of conked out and from I think camp three onwards they were doing double carries as well. But anyway, the question that you should ask yourself is like if you're a runner or if you're a physical athlete, are you addicted to that always being at the nine and ten of exertion level? Or can you actually enjoy and take care of your body and really nourish your body with recovery and also with sustainable training? Can you run so that you breathe through your nose and not through your mouth. So these are the three questions. I hope they're helpful to you. And I will be sharing in future episodes how my own recovery from workaholism and that addiction is progressing. Thank you guys. I hope you have an amazing day.